Our lesson of the day is Psalm 15. Listen carefully again to God's Word. This is a psalm by David. Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks perfectly and who works righteousness and who speaks truth with his heart. He does not trip up with his tongue. He does no evil to his friend. And a reproach he does not take up against his neighbor. Despised in his eyes is one who is rejected. But the one who fears Yahweh he honors. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. His silver he does not give with interest. And a bribe against the innocent he does not take. He who does these things will not be moved forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you proclaim the way of salvation to us. We thank you for how you instruct us in righteousness. We thank you for the revelation of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray now that your spirit would be with us to bless the reading and the proclamation of your word, that we would be consecrated as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to You. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in Your sight. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Psalms 14, which we looked at uh, a while ago, and Psalm 15 together illustrate for us the sharp contrast between the righteous and the wicked, between the wise and the foolish. As we've seen, Psalm 14 describes, gives us a picture of the quintessential fool. His basic attitude, his life motto is, No God. Not in a philosophical sort of uh, way I, I deduce from, all the, uh, from the, all the arguments that I don't think God exists, but no God. No God over me. Nobody orders me around. I don't owe anybody anything. That's what Psalm 14 teaches us is the basic attitude of a fool. One who does not fear God. One who cares nothing for God. One who openly flouts God's authority. Those who consume God's people and oppress God's people. And those who spread their corruption like wildfire. And at the end of Psalm 14, David's prayer, his confidence is that the Lord is a refuge for the afflicted. His confidence is that God will bring salvation for His people from the oppression of the wicked. And Psalm 15 then describes for us the kind of person who finds refuge in the Lord. Psalm 15 paints a picture for us not of a fool, but of a truly wise man. A man after God's own heart. A man who fears the Lord. A man whose chief concern in life is to live faithfully before the Lord and to be welcomed into His presence. 
these two psalms together develop the themes established in Psalm 1, which we sang uh, earlier. That there are really, ultimately, when it comes down to it, there are ultimately two kinds of people. There are ultimately only two ways in life. There are ultimately only two destinations. The wicked are driven from God's presence while the faithful dwell securely in God's house. Verse 2 of our psalm today summarizes a life, this kind of life of wisdom and faithfulness before God. Verse 2 says, He walks perfectly, He works righteousness, and He speaks truth with His heart. The man who is at home in God's presence seeks to live in such a way that his walk, his works, and his words are all pleasing to God. This is not just some sort of description of checking all the boxes and sort of playing the part. This is a description of righteousness that goes down to the very root of who we are and is then manifested in everything that we do. In other words, Psalm 15 describes people of integrity. The word integrity is related to the word for integer, which is a is something that's whole, something that's not fragmented by sin, something that is not fractured. It's complete and it's whole. Integrity basically means that you're not a hypocrite. The way you treat people to their face matches the way you talk about them when they're not around. Integrity means you seek to honor God in public as well as in private, whether you're at church, at work, at school, or hanging out with your friends. Integrity means that you want nothing to do with evasions, white lies, deceptions, putting up a show, putting up a front. Your life is characterized by honesty and sincerity. This is what it means to be perfect in the biblical sense. To be perfect, to walk perfectly is not a description of total sinlessness. It doesn't mean you never sin, but it means that you have integrity, that you own up to your sins and you seek the forgiveness that God provides. It is, it's a description of wholeness and completeness. But Psalm 15 doesn't just tell us about a person of integrity. The structure of the psalm shows us what a person of integrity looks like. It starts off by describing what what a righteous man does with his feet. And then it shows us what a righteous man does with his hands. And then it tells us what a righteous person does with his mouth. And then it tells us what a righteous person does with his eyes. And then as if moving right back down the other side, it goes back to what a righteous man does with his mouth, and then with his hand, and then with his feet. The structure of the psalm, the psalm shows us, paints a portrait for us of a man after God's own heart. And can you guess, just just take a stab at it, can you guess how many attributes might be listed here? If you guessed ten you would be right. What does Psalm 1 tell us about 
The righteous man, Psalm 1 tells us that the righteous man meditates on God's law day and night. So it shouldn't surprise us then that Psalm 15 describes ten characteristics of a righteous life, like just like the Ten Commandments, or sort of the summation of the law. Here is a summation of a life of blessing, a life that is pleasing to God. Obviously, this is not an exhaustive list, but we see here a very clear example of what it means to meditate on God's law and have the law, the instruction, the Word of God permeate and inform every aspect of life. The first line, so I I sort of said that verse 2 is a summary statement of a man who walks perfectly, who works righteousness and speaks truth with his heart. And then in verse 3, we begin, the psalmist unpacks each of those items for us. And the first line has to do, uh, the first line of uh, verse 3 says, he does not trip up with his tongue. Some translations say he does not slander with his tongue. But this is a really sort of unusual phrase here that has much broader implications than merely slander. It refers to tripping somebody like with your foot, but with your tongue. It refers to any actions that trip up other people and cause them harm. It has the idea of using your feet and your tongue to do damage to other people. So it might include things such as going around, digging up dirt on other people, or going around meddling in other people's business. But it also does include things that we do, things that we say with our tongue. Because as we heard from James 3, the most likely way for us to do damage to other people is with our tongues. The tongue is the most destructive weapon we possess in many, in many ways. You can wreck someone's life. You can drive them to the brink of despair without ever laying a hand on someone. You can crush someone with just a few words. You parents know this is true with your children. A few harsh, careless words can do immeasurable damage. You can bring all sorts of trouble down on yourself with just a few careless words. Like the book of Proverbs, the book of James contains some of the strongest warnings about the destructive power of the tongue and the devastating effects that sinful speech can have on others and on ourselves. At the same time, the Scriptures also teach us that our words have incredible power to heal, to strengthen, and to impart God's grace to other people. Think about it. I imagine how our lives would be different. Imagine the kind of transformation that you could see in your marriage, that you could see with your children, with your classmates, with your coworkers. If, if we just followed Paul's basic advice that we should let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only such as is good for building up 
as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Imagine how your life would be different. Imagine how different a place the world would be if no corrupt speech came out of our mouths and we were imparting grace to our hearers. That would be a totally different world. We could change the world. This, so this prohibition against hurting other people with our words, tripping them up with our words, is closely connected to the next line, which forbids doing harm to a friend. Now you say, well, why would... I mean, that seems sort of obvious, right? You, we don't normally think of doing harm to our friends. We normally think of doing harm to our enemies, right? But usually our friends, the people closest to us, are the, are the people that are most vulnerable to our to being hurt by us. Our friends, the people that are closest to us, are the ones that we often hurt the worst. Because no one is so vulnerable as a close friend or relative. It's far easier to hurt a spouse or a relative or a good friend because you know their weaknesses. You know their secrets. You have dirt on them. You know how to exact revenge just just right. You know how to push those buttons. You know how to, to where the chinks in the armor are. You know the soft spots. And so oftentimes we do, we do more damage. We do worse damage to the people closest to us. And so this psalm warns us against doing evil to our friends. Because this involves a profound violation of trust. It undermines relationships and can damage those relationships beyond repair. Now, of course, there are certainly times when people we love have to do or say things that feel unloving. As Proverbs 27.6 puts it, faithful are the wounds of a friend. There are some cases in which the most unloving thing you could do to another person is to just be nice. But a true friend knows how and when to administer that bitter pill of loving correction or loving admonition. And a true friend knows how to swallow that bitter pill and thank God for someone who loves them enough not to let them remain in their sin. How many people like that do you have in your life? Do you have friends that trust you enough to let you wound them? Are you able to receive the wounds of a friend in humility? I think our world today, I think my generation, younger generations in particular, have a crisis of friendship. Real friendship. An absence of true friendship. We have all the virtual friends in the world but I think we have a deep need for developing and cultivating true friendship, especially among God's people. Because that's where sanctification happens. That's where 
we sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. And so the last line of verse 3 focuses on honoring God with our mouth. Our feet, our hands, our mouth. And it says that the, the man who dwells in God's presence, the man who's welcomed into God's sanctuary, does not take up a reproach against his neighbor. Of course, your neighbor in the Bible refers to a much broader range of people than just the folks who live in the houses you know, right around your house. A neighbor is anyone near you, anyone that you come across in need. And so this is a very broad uh, prohibition against taking up a reproach, against slandering, verbally attacking anyone. As we've said, words are most devastating as character assassinations. We can ruin someone's reputation just by making accusations or spreading rumors about them or spreading, uh, slinging mud against people. We can discredit someone. We can cause them to lose face. And gossip is, is this, uh, gossip is like the accessory to the crime. You have slander, which is the verbal attack, but then you have gossip, which is its ugly cousin. Gossip involves spreading rumors about people, airing other people's dirty laundry. And Proverbs 10 addresses this and warns us saying that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Love covers all offenses. What does it mean for love to cover an offense? It doesn't mean that we should just condone or enable sin. It doesn't mean that we should just ignore grievous sin and sweep it under the rug and act like it's not even there. No, that would be quite unloving, as we've already said. We can cover an offense with love by giving the benefit of the doubt. We can cover an offense with love by assuming the best about other people and not automatically reading into their motives the worst possible inferences. We can cover an offense with love by refusing to take offense whenever possible. And when it's not possible to cover an offense with love, whenever there really is a true offense, we must seek reconciliation in love. And then we can cover that offense once it's been dealt with, once there's been Uh, an attempt at reconciliation, we can still cover that offense with love by refusing to broadcast that information to people who don't need to know about it. Love requires that we refuse to spread gossip and that we refuse to hear gossip. It takes two, at least two, to gossip. Gossip can't spread if everyone refuses to hear it. And so we move now to the central section of the psalm and the description of what a righteous man does with his eyes. And this is maybe not exactly what we would expect. Despised in his eyes is one who is rejected. 
but the one who fears the Lord, he honors. We live in a day and age that is dominated by visual appearance, right? By visual bombardment. You can't go anywhere or do anything without being bombarded by visual messages. We live in an age of political optics, of clickbait, of all sorts of uh, things clamoring for the attention of our eyes. And we are always tempted to judge things based upon appearance. And of course, there's very good reason to be concerned about what we look at, what we put before our eyes, the purity of our eyes and of our thoughts. But the Bible here especially is concerned about how we use our eyes to evaluate things. Because the eye is the organ of judgment. Even from the very beginning of the Bible, God saw His creation. He saw that it was good. So we see here that when God looks at something, He evaluates it. When we look at something, we are inescapably evaluating things. And we are either evaluating things based on God's standard or we are evaluating things based on some other standard, based on our own personal preference, based on the standards that our culture tells us we should use to evaluate things. And so Psalm 15, verse 4 here, is about the standards evaluating things by God's standards, about seeing the way the world seeing the world the way God sees the world. Honoring things that God honors. Rejecting things that God rejects. And so if God rejects something, then we must also reject it. If God honors something, then we must honor it too, whether it fits our preferences or not. It's the same basic idea when it comes to judging other people. If God has rejected someone as a covenant breaker or an enemy, then God's people must not offer their approval or support or allegiance. Doesn't mean we have to hate that person and wish, you know, wish the the worst possible things in the world to happen to them, but it means that we put our allegiance where God would have us to put our allegiance. We honor the things that God honors and we refuse to honor the things that God's Word tells us not to honor. This is an important part of what it means to have righteous eyes, to see the world as God sees it. And so, having moved all the way up one side of the body, so to speak, now the psalm moves us back down the other way, from the eyes back to the mouth. There's a lot in this about our words, because as we've said, this is incredibly important, incredibly powerful, and our words reveal our hearts. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so verse 5, the beginning of verse 5 says, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. One important dimension of this attribute has to do with worship and making vows before God. 
There's a whole passage at the end of Leviticus about making vows before God and what you can and cannot change. If you commit to offer something to God, you cannot go back on that under certain circumstances. And so by extension, we can apply this principle to any oath taken before God or any vow made to God. Think of the vows that have that you have taken in your life. And think of the different vocations in which you live and the different responsibilities that you have before God. If you um, took vows at your child's baptism, you probably took, many of you have taken vows to raise your children in the fear of the Lord. I'm guessing you most likely took some sort of vows when you were married. You took vows to be faithful to your spouse. If you've ever been ordained to an office in the church, you've taken vows. If you're a, a, a civil servant um, in, the, in the government, you have taken an oath to execute your office in a, in a particular way. If you're a member of a church, if you're a member of this congregation, you've taken membership vows. Right? All of these vows, all of these promises are incredibly important. And it's important that we, we think about the obligations that we have made and that we seek to fulfill those obligations faithfully. Now, one thing that this verse does not mean is that we, uh, we make a rash vow that hurts other people and we keep that vow. <laughs> that, would be, that would be rather easy. There are several examples in Scripture of people who made stupid promises that hurt other people and they were bound and determined to keep that, that foolish vow. Think of King Saul saying that none of his soldiers you know, could eat anything uh, or else they would die until the battle was over and then his own son uh, eats something because he's about to starve to death and, and it's, a, you know, it's a big mess, right? No, this is not talking about making promises uh, that put other people in a bad spot. This is talking about making promises that are costly to us. A man of integrity follows through. He keeps his word even when it is very costly to himself. Now, that doesn't mean that once you make a promise, you are locked in and there's no going back. Because Proverbs 6 tells us that if you've made a, if you've made a foolish vow, if you've gotten yourself into a, a contract or an agreement that is unwise, you should go immediately to that person and do everything in your power to extricate yourself from that situation in a way that is honorable and preserves your integrity. You should try to get yourself out of a foolish situation if you can. But sometimes there is no way out. Sometimes you are stuck. And a man of integrity faces up to, owns his mistakes, and, and just bites the bullet and, and goes through with it, even at great personal expense to himself. My uncle had a saying uh, that summarizes the truth of this idea. He, he would always say, when you're stupid, you've got to be tough. And that, my friends, is great wisdom. 
But more broadly than that, than just getting yourself into uh, a foolish situation, this, this idea has to do with just basic trustworthiness. Are you trustworthy? Are you dependable? Or are you flaky and unreliable? What's your reputation with other people? Do you avoid commitment at all costs? Do you, do you back out of, of promises that you've made? Do you keep your options open uh, and, and avoid getting you know, locked in into anything? Do you finish what you start? Could you borrow money at the bank simply on your word? To quote the old country song. This sort of integrity has to do with your reputation. It has to do with your character. It has to do with whether or not people can trust you. And this is so important because our faithfulness, our integrity, reflects upon God's faithfulness. If Christians are known as people of integrity, that reflects to the world the faithfulness and the integrity of God. But on the flip side, if Christians are known as unreliable and untrustworthy and always you know, seeking to weasel their way out of things, pulling lame excuses, then that makes God look really bad in the eyes of the world. This was such a big deal to the Apostle Paul that he takes up several chapters at the beginning of 2 Corinthians to address accusations that he had not kept his word to come and visit the Corinthians as he had promised. This is a big, big deal. And so as, uh, as verse 5 makes clear, the kind of man who does what he says at great personal expense is also the kind of person who refuses to take advantage of others. The last, um, the next to the last line of verse 5 says, His silver he does not give with interest, and a bribe against the innocent he does not take. God's law allowed for money to be loaned at interest in business transactions, but never... To, never to a family member, and never when it would take advantage of someone's misfortunes. In fact, there are many cases that Scripture describes for us where we are called to give to the poor without expecting anything in return. God's Word always, always forbids extortion, forbids preying upon people who are vulnerable, and always encourages generosity. Those are the principles uh, of of this attribute. And we are also forbidden to take a bribe against the innocent. Now, if you if you if you look into this, you will see that God's Word always forbids His people from taking bribes, but there is no definitive total prohibition on paying bribes. If you live in a corrupt society and your only option to get some corrupt official to do their job is to pay them a bribe, that that seems to be okay. 
If you talk to, if you've ever lived or, or worked in uh, places where bribes are just sort of a part of the normal culture, you know that sometimes you, you have to you have to bribe people just to get them to to do their job, right? You go to South America or some different societies, and you can't get anything done without a bribe. But there is never, never an occasion when it is acceptable for a righteous person to take a bribe, especially if the bribe will hurt the innocent or the vulnerable. We are never allowed to uh, do anything that would promote injustice against the poor. And we are never involved to, to take advantage and, and get personal gain uh, out of hurting and, and violating um, the innocent. As a wise man once said, if you want to know what a man is like, take a good look at how he treats his inferiors, not his equals. This is the, the measure of a man. Now, David began this psalm by asking, Lord, who may sojourn in Your tent? Who may dwell on Your holy hill? That's the opening question. The wording of David's question suggests that he's seeking a temporary visit. He's seeking entrance into God's sanctuary to go and worship there for a short time. A sojourner is someone visiting a foreign country. The verb to dwell is the same word that describes God's uh, glory cloud that through the wilderness would come and, and dwell in a certain place for a certain time and then would pick up and move on somewhere else. This refers uh, to the idea of a temporary settling down. The look, uh, David is looking for an audience with the Lord. A, a quick visit into God's earthly sanctuary. But Psalm 15, if you notice the way Psalm 15 ends, the answer to David's opening question includes an incredible promise that goes far beyond the expectation of just a short visit into God's presence. The, the promise, uh, the concluding promise of Psalm 15 is he who does these things will not be moved forever. David is seeking temporary access into God's sanctuary, but in this concluding promise of the psalm, he's given a glimpse into the eternal enjoyment of God's presence promised to all faithful believers. This final promise promises nothing short of resurrection and new creation. If God's people are to dwell in God's presence forever, then we're going to need bodies free from the curse of death as well as access to a sanctuary not made with human hands. David knew that the thing he needed most was to get into God's presence. He knew that Psalm 15 was not about getting your act together so then you can show up 
and, and, and in God's presence. And God will say, good, I'm glad you got your act straight before you ever came to my house. No, David knew that it was by going to the Lord's house to worship, by going to the Lord's house to be instructed in God's Word by communing with God in His sanctuary that He would become the sort of person described in Psalm 15. This psalm is a roadmap for discipleship. This psalm is an exhortation to radical obedience. It's a warning against hypocrisy. But this psalm is also a promise of eternal life a promise of heavenly glory, a promise of new creation. Matthew Henry put it this way, the scope of this short but excellent psalm is to show us the way to catch this heaven, to show us the way to heaven and to convince us that if we would be happy, we must be holy. The way to happiness in this life and in the world to come is the way of holiness. And this psalm, like every other psalm, of course, is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And so the promise of dwelling securely in God's presence is ultimately only realized in Him. Jesus is the man after God's own heart. He is the one who walked perfectly, who worked righteousness and spoke the truth from his heart. He is the righteous man who fulfills every attribute of Psalm 15 and every requirement of God's law. And as the sinless Lamb of God slain not for His own sins, but for the sins of you and me, Christ has opened a way not just into an earthly sanctuary, but into the very presence of God in heaven. And so in union with Jesus, we are made holy. We are welcomed into God's very presence. That's what happens every Lord's Day when we gather for worship. We ascend by the Spirit into the heavenly sanctuary as a foretaste of the eternal enjoyment of God's presence that will be realized at the return of Christ. And so in a way that David could only dream of, in a way that David could only see by faith, now we are made holy because God's very presence dwells in us. That's what it means to be holy, to be consecrated by the indwelling of God's Spirit. If God is there, it is holy. If God dwells in you, you are holy. You have been washed with the water and the Word. You've been set free from the power of sin. Your sinful flesh and its sinful desires have been crucified, have been executed with Jesus. You are no longer under the curse of sin and death. You are welcome in God's house. You are welcome at God's table. And you have been set free to live not for yourself, but for God and for your neighbor. 
But even more than that, your baptism is your consecration as a living temple for the Spirit. You are not your own. The Spirit of God dwells in you, making you holy. And as the people of God, as the church of God, we are being fitted together. We are being built up as the body of Christ into a living temple for the Spirit. So we are called to be faithful so that we can dwell with God in His presence unashamed and because God now dwells within us. In union with Christ, we are counted holy. And by the Spirit's presence and work in us, we are becoming who we are in Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Let us pray. Grant us, Lord, we pray, the Spirit to think and do always those things that are right, that we who cannot exist without You may by You be enabled to live according to Your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with You in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.